Well, if you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off. In fact, the title of the message this morning is Dead to Sin. Because that's what God wants of us. He wants us to be dead to sin. In fact, I think when you just think of the word sin, it's a terrible word, right? Nobody wants to talk about sin. What is sin? Nobody wants to talk about that. But the entire concept of continuing in sin is something that many of us don't ever think about. Uh, in fact, for too many of us, the concept of continuing in sin is something that we rarely enters our minds. I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, knowing that I was going to come into this text of Scripture, and there's several things that came to my mind. Number one, the idea that we don't blush at sin any longer. We don't even, we don't, things that used to bother us seemingly don't bother us anymore. I remember how, just thinking about how things change over time. How many of you remember Dan Quayle? He was running for president years ago. I love Dan Quayle. I bought his book in college. And I remember reading about him. And remember, he was just a neat guy, a, a fine, upstanding man filled with character. In fact, he had won every political race he'd ever entered until that one. And he lost. And I think... The biggest reason he lost was because he made comments about what was taking place in the culture around us. Some of you may be old enough to remember a TV sit sitcom series called Murphy Brown. And he made comments about that sitcom saying, I don't understand why people think it's okay for people to live together and have sex together and be, do all these things before they're married. And he got crucified over that statement. But you know what we find out today? Happens all the time. No big deal. Things that used to bother us don't bother us anymore. Used to see things on TV now that would never be allowed 20 years ago, but now it's just every day. And most of us, though we may not like it, eh, it's not enough to turn the channel, though. We hear cussing and swearing go on, and we may not like it, but we don't turn the channel. We've just come accepted that we, it, it's become acceptable that there are things going on all around us that used to bother us that we just kind of put up with now. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, there are things that influence, impact us, cause us to think differently because we don't deny it. We don't put it down. We don't walk away from it like we once used to. So he has this whole concept of, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Should we just continue to put up with the sin around us and the sin that we're involved with because it's no big deal? I mean, after all, God's going to forgive us anyway, right? I mean, that's who God is. That's what God does. So we don't have to worry about it. He's going to give us His grace, and He's going to you know, bestow His forgiveness upon us over and over and over and over again because that's who God is. So it doesn't really matter in the big picture. It really does matter. It should matter to us because continuing in sin is something we should think about. As we, can, as we wake up and go through our days, if there's something that is sin in our life, we should get rid of it. It should become part of who we are as believers to not want to do it. So there's a couple honest questions that came to my mind. Are we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And so God gives us the answer. He says, may it never be. You say, well, is it, is it really a big deal to God that if I have this little area of sinfulness? I mean, I know it's not the best thing. It's not a real bad thing. I mean, it's not murder. It's not, you know, I'm not stealing anything from anybody. It's not hurting anyone. Why, what does it really matter? It matters because God says don't do it. That's why it matters. 
It matters for that one and only reason God says don't. And so there's oftentimes, we, there's, well, two things that come to my mind. He says, may, it may never be. And according to your, some of your translations, depending on which translation you have, it may say, may it never be so. It may, it may say, God forbid. It may say, certainly not. But that concept is stop. Just because God is gracious, just because He's a God that forgives, doesn't give you an excuse to continue in it. So then he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So remember, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, that as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we take that step of believer's baptism, it's the idea that the old man is crucified, old things are put away, and all things are become new. There is a new creation within us. So he says to not continue in sin. So to continue in sin is something we should not do. And to continue in sin means that we are abusing God's grace. I like Tony Evans says it this way. He says, but no judge shows mercy to a criminal so that he can go out and commit more crimes, right? I like how he puts that. We have the idea that, well, God's going to forgive us, no big deal. That doesn't give us a license to go on and continue in the sin that we're involved with. Just like a criminal before a judge, he says, there is a consequence to the sin. I'm not going to show mercy just so you can go out and do more crime. There is a consequence to sin. And so he says, don't continue in it. So consider a couple of thoughts here. Sin has a devastating effect. I don't know about you, how many of you appreciate the fact that we can pray to God and He's the God that answers? Raise your hand. Yeah, all of us. We want to know that when we are praying to God, that He hears us. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I want you to just be reminded of a couple of verses. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard, and depending on your translation, it says, If I cherish or if I continue in sin, the Lord will not hear your prayers. We'll say, well, how can that be? God always hears our prayers. There is a point at which God says, I'm not going to listen anymore. You cannot continue in sin and then expect me to answer your prayer and say, well, there's no big deal. I mean, just go ahead and continue in sin. I'll bless you anyway. God says no. And all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have had times in our lives where we said, well, this thing is not that big a deal. No one else knows about it. God knows. Psalm 139 says that no matter where you can go, no matter what you can do, no matter on this planet you can hide from, you can't hide from God. God always knows where you're at and what you're doing. If Hebrews chapter 4 says all things are naked and open before God with whom we have to do. The reality is that you cannot hide from God. You can hide sin from your parents. You can hide sin from your children. You can hide sin from your relatives. You can hide sin from your coworkers. You can hide sin from anybody, but you cannot hide sin from God. And you say, well, it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. You say, well, it's just a little fib. It's just a little exaggeration. God understands. You know, I don't know about you, but I am really super good at justifying, rationalizing, and excusing my sin. Anyone else? It's really easy to do that. I can come up with a good reason why I think it's okay, why I did what I did. But when I stand before God, He's going to say, nah, it doesn't hold any weight. You could chose to continue in sin. We're going to get that in Romans chapter 8 when we get there. It says, that they that mind the things of the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. They that mind the things of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In, that, in fact, every day it's a choice what we choose to put our minds on. And the very fact that he says set, it means it's a choice. I am choosing to put it there. When we choose to sin, it's not because it's an accident. 
we choose to do what we want to do because it gratifies or soothes or, or our flesh enjoys it. And he says, don't do it. Am I to continue in sin just because God is gracious and he's going to forgive? No. There comes a point where you will sear, your conscience will be seared and God will say, you know what? You're going to suffer the consequences of your choices. God is always there when we repent. But he says, if I regard or cherish or continue in sin, the Lord will not hear my prayers. Proverbs 28.13 goes a little bit further. He says, he who conceals his sins or his transgressions will not prosper. Well, that's encouraging. I can continue in sin and think, well, wait a minute. How am I supposed to prosper if God's hand is not upon me? Let me just say something here. There are a ton of people in this world that have a lot of what this world has to offer, right? They have material wealth. They have material goods. They look, I mean, by looking at them, they're unsaved. They don't go to church. They don't love God. They despise God. They live for the things of this world, and they have it all. So don't tell me that by living in sin that, God, that I'm not going to prosper. No, let's not mix the lines between God's blessing and material wealth. There's a completely different aspect of both of those. The world may have material wealth, but it does not mean that the world has God's blessing. Those are two different things. In fact, we looked at that in Psalms, how we're not to look at the world and say, well, they have it all. They may have it all, but if they don't have Christ, they have nothing. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 says, For what shall a man prosper if he gain the whole world and what? Lose his own soul. Let's not mix just because they have material wealth or material goods and equate that with God's blessing. They're two different things. But he says, he who conceals his sins will not prosper. There's a whole uh, idea of what that can mean, but we understand what it means to prosper. And, and when I think of in terms of walking with the Lord, he says, you're not going to have my blessing. He says, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive compassion. That's the beautiful part of grace. It's compassionate. He says, he who confesses and forsakes. So it's not just the idea to say, well, you know, I'm guilty. <laughs> Who of us isn't? We're all sinners, right? <laughs> no big deal. He says, no, wait a minute. It's not just enough to acknowledge it. He says, I can acknowledge it, but he says, he who confesses and what? Forsakes. In other words, there has to be a turning away from, and that's the whole idea behind repentance. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the idea is when I'm confronted with sin, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but when, my, when I'm confronted with what I'm doing is wrong, and then I turn my back on it and go the opposite direction, that's what it means to repent. So it's, it's not enough just to say, well, I'm guilty. We have to say, I'm guilty, and then stop doing it. Acknowledge it. You know, I don't know about you, but one of the hardest things to do in the life of a kid is to teach them to be honest. I've never met a kid that you had to teach him how to lie. I've never met a kid that you had to teach him to not tell the truth. Johnny, did you hit your sister? No. You can catch a kid red-handed, have it on videotape, and he's still not going to admit it. I was sharing in the first service. Uh, last summer, we, were, we had a family visit us, and uh, the one boy reached out and just socked his brother. Did you hit your brother? No. He ran into my fist. Really? Yep, he just ran into my fist. Never mind it was fully extended right at him, but he ran into it. <laughs> this is the same boy, and I hope they're not watching. <laughs> uh, 
He said, my son, he got in trouble because his son was getting in trouble at school. And so mom went in and talked to the principal. And the principal said, I, I know my son. My son didn't, does not lie. He would not do that. Um, ma'am, we have him on video. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've never met a kid who you had to teach to lie. But one of the hardest things for every one of us to do is to admit our faults. To admit when we've done something wrong. It's just something within us. I don't want to confess that I might have done something wrong. And that's why a lot of times when we say, well, if I've offended you. No, there's no if. You know you did. Well, if I, if I did something wrong. No, you, there's no not if you did. You know you did. We don't want to admit it. Because we can rationalize. It's like one of the things my wife taught me early on in our marriage. When I say I'm sorry, it's not I'm sorry, but no, there's no buts. Because a but qualifies why you're sorry. It's not I'm sorry, but you know it's I'm sorry. I take full responsibility. He who conceals his sinfulness will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will receive compassion. Isaiah 59, 2, I mentioned last week just briefly. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. Did God really say that? Yes, He did. He says, if you continue in sin, you want to continue to hide it, you want to continue to pretend it's not there, you want to not continue to not deal with it, He says, I'm turning my face from you, and I will not listen to your prayers. Until we are willing to repent, He says, I'm not going to deal with that, I'm not going to bless you, I'm not going to make you prosper. One thing we forget oftentimes is Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Every choice has consequences, both good and bad, right? Everything we do will have a consequence. But... Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And here's where I said we're going to get back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. It says, for if we go on sinning willfully. You know what the word willfully means? It means that you are making a choice to do it. I haven't been honest with my family members. Uh, no big deal. What they don't know won't hurt them. Well, mom, did this happen? Or dad, did this happen? Well, no, it didn't happen. We know the truth, but we're not going to, we're not going to say it. You continue to sin. Continue to lie. You continue to hide this sin from everyone else. You continue to think, well, this is not that big deal. I continue to do this at work even though the boss doesn't know it. I continue to do this at church even though no one else around me knows this. When we continue to sin, it says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what does that mean? In other words, you know what's right. You know what is true. You know what you should not be doing. You've been told. It's been explained. You understand God's Word. You understand the Spirit's conviction for doing it. But you continue to do it. If you go on sinning willfully after knowing the truth, what's he say? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. A lot of people that I've read about in the last couple weeks equate this passage with the Lord's table. We understand, yes, the Lord's table is a time of celebration. Why? Because we look back to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And what did He do by dying on the cross? He shed His blood to cover our what? Our sinfulness. But when we continue to sin and take what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross for granted, it's as if that, sinful, or that sacrifice for sin is of no avail to you. 
because you choose to continue in sin and disregard what He has done for you. The fact that He gave His life and shed His blood for that sin. So to go on sinning is to abuse the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us on the cross. So He says, are we to continue in sin because grace abounds? No. May it never be so. Certainly not. God forbid. It is a big deal. We should not continue in sin. So, just before we go on, you and God know what those besetting sins are. I may not know them. Your neighbor may not know them. Your kids may not know them there, but you and God know what they are. What is that sin that you've been just saying, oh, it's not that big a deal? Is it a wrong relationship? Is it things that you're doing in your family that you know are hurting them and harming them and you choose not to deal with it? Is it your uncontrolled anger? Is it your uncontrolled lying? Is it your uncontrolled stealing? What is it? You and God know what those things are. And he says, stop. Stop. Don't abuse the grace that I've given to you. In our text, verses 3 and 4, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. The word baptize is an interesting word. Oftentimes in the Greek language, you've probably heard a million times over the years that baptize means to immerse, to submerse, to go completely under. And that's exactly what it means. In fact, that's why we take a a strong stance on water immersion baptism. Uh, We don't believe in sprinkling. Sprinkling is not baptism in my opinion, and I believe it's based on God's word. And there's a very strong reason for that. In God's Word, it talks about baptism. When we stand in the water, we form a what? Cross. And we often say that water baptism is a public proclamation of a decision that has taken place privately, inwardly. So when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, one of the first steps of obedience is to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. So I am publicly identifying, as I stand in the water, I form a cross, and that is a public identification with Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. Someone asked me years ago, Pastor, can we come over on Sunday afternoon after everyone leaves and do baptism? And I said, no. He says, well, why not? I'm so, I'm so nervous. I'm, I'm shy. I don't really want to get in front of other people. And I said, because baptism is a public testimony. It's a public proclamation. I said, I can't do it in private. I said, I need you to do it openly. It says you're not ashamed. And so he chose not to get baptized for many years. We stand in the water. What did Christ do on the cross? He died. So as we go under the water, we are symbolizing His death. And as Jesus Christ did not stay in the tomb, He what? He arose. So that's when I stand up and and we have a baptismal service. I I put the handkerchief, so I don't drown somebody, over their nose and their mouth. And I said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Buried in likeness of His death, raised in likeness of His resurrection. It symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why sprinkling is not a biblical picture of baptism. Because baptism, from the Greek word, means baptizo, means to go fully under, to submerge. You can't do that from sprinkling. But there's often a word picture that's associated with some Greek words. And the word picture that that is ascribed to this one is the idea of dyeing a garment with a specific color. So there's an idea here that there is a vat full of a a specific color, and I have a garment, and I drip it down into. So if I just put it halfway into the vat and pull it back up, have I 
baptized it? No. In fact, I'm not, I haven't baptized that garment until it goes completely under, maybe even including my hand or whatever utensil I use to plunge it under and pull it back up. And what you'll find is that once I have dipped it in a different color, the entire piece of garment has changed. Not just part of it, all of it has changed. What did he say? He says, once I am baptized, I am raised in newness of life. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Cannot be done through sprinkling. But baptism means that I have crucified the flesh and now I'm living to represent Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, it says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Isn't that awesome? Um, the words put on has the idea of clothing. In, in the Legacy Translation Bible, it says clothed in Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Because he talks about baptism being a garment being completely changed as it is plunged. And now he says you are putting on the cloth, clothes of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 3, there's an interesting passage here that talks much about this. How God wants us to walk in newness of life. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 3, it says, For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Now think about this just for a moment. He says, baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. We have crucified the flesh. We have put to death everything that we were before we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he says, for you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Why do you think Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Paul wanted them, people around him not to see himself, but to see a picture of Jesus. Why? Because Paul's flesh was crucified. Paul put to death who he was before Jesus Christ got a hold of his life. Going on here, it says, And when Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you will be manifested with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, the sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also, what's the word? Once walked when you were living in them the word once is important because it means it's past tense it's what used to be in your life before christ came into it but then he says in verse eight but now this is after christ comes in you also lay them all aside wrath anger malice slander abusive speech from your mouth do not lie one to another since you put off the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So there is a put-off principle and a put-on principle. We're to put off all those things of the flesh and to put on the things of the Spirit. Put off the old man and put on the new man. There is an idea that we are discarding one and putting on another one. And what we are putting on is Christ. So all those things that says, this is past tense, this is what used to be, should not be part of who we are now in Jesus, right? So put that back into Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin? No. These are the things that should not be characteristic of your life 
now that you know Jesus. So he goes on in our text there in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Hmm. The verse that came to my mind when I was thinking about this is, is Philippians chapter 3. Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. He said, There is a part of us that has died. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Because as we raise in newness of life, guess what? There is going to be suffering. But he said there's a fellowship in the suffering. What's the suffering from? There are consequences to leaving the old life behind. Oftentimes it is people who will ridicule, people who will make fun of, people who will not understand. There are consequences to walking in righteousness and holiness where some people want you to live like the world and to join in and laugh at the, at the worldly jokes and the, the, crude and the, the crudeness and the reality of their sinfulness. There's a suffering that takes place if we're living for Christ. Because the world does not understand what it means to know Jesus. But there is a fellowship. We have each other. Folks, let me just say it. I believe personally that there's coming a day where things are going to get even more difficult than what they are. People are ticked off at the inflation they're ticked off that the gas is a dollar more than it was a year ago. They're ticked off that everything is thirty to, you know, twenty to thirty percent higher in the stores. But that's all nothing. I think we're living in a day where we're going to see persecution, and it's going to come with a vengeance in the next few years. I believe. I could be wrong. I remember sitting around my dad's table in eighth grade and him saying, "No, it's got to be the end. It's got, I mean, God's got to be coming any day now." My how things have changed in thirty years since my dad's been gone. For the worse. And just when we think it can't get any worse, guess what? It's going to get worse. But what I understand and what I know and what I believe in is that we have a fellowship of all of us that may go through suffering revolving around Jesus Christ and His body of believers. We need each other. All the more. In fact, that's why He says in Hebrews 10.25, Forsake not the assembling. Right? We're to come together all the more as we see the day approaching. I don't know when that day is. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when Christ is coming. But I have to believe it's imminent. I have to be, believe it's close. Amen? We see what's going on. I don't know what else needs to happen before Jesus Christ can come. But the reality is we have each other and we have Jesus Christ at the center of it all. And we need each other. All the more as we see the day approaching. But we're going to know the fellowship of His suffering. He says, that I may know Him. In other words, he wasn't shying away from the fellowship of the suffering. He embraced it. And then verse 6, we see another powerful reminder. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Just a, The verse is self-explanatory, but let me just say a couple things about it. Number one, he says the old man is crucified That is because we put it to death. In fact, the Word of God tells us to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put them to death. 
because we're risen in Christ, we're a new creation. But what does it mean to be a slave? Any of us who have lived long enough have seen a movie where slaves were depicted in the movie. What happens when a slave chose not to do what his master told him to do? He was beaten, scourged, sometimes left for dead, some cases even killed. Why? Because a slave is not free to make his own decisions, right? Right? A slave does not have a right to make his own decisions. He is owned by somebody. He is under somebody's complete control. But isn't it interesting that God's Word equates this to sin? A week ago or two weeks ago, I gave you a phrase that I've heard over the years. I don't know who it originated with. Sin will take you further than you meant to go. It will cost you more than you meant to pay. And it will keep you longer than you meant to stay. Sin has a grip on those who embrace it. You say, well, those that embrace it? Yeah, because remember Romans 8. You choose every day what you're going to do. Nobody put a gun to your head and said, hey, I want you to cuss today and take God's name in vain. Nobody puts a gun to your head and says, hey, I want you to steal that over there. Nobody puts a gun to our head and says, hey, you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot you if you don't tell this lie to someone. We choose to do what we do. Nobody forces us. But not only do we choose, we often can rationalize and justify and excuse it because it's no big deal. I mean, after all, it's not hurting anybody. It doesn't bother them. It's my own, it's, it's my own deal. So why does it matter to you what I do? <laughs> it matters. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He does not want us to be under the power, under the control of sin. And he says, that's why the old man was crucified. That's why you're not that in that position any longer. Ephesians chapter 4, once again, gives us a picture of what it should be like as we come to know Jesus and walk with him. I actually want to begin with verse 17. It says, Therefore this I say and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, and being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So what's he doing here? He is using the picture of the Gentile people as a picture of those who are unsaved, un, you know, heathens, who are still living in their sin. He says, don't be like them. This is an example of someone who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus. So he says, verse 19, And they, talking about these unregenerate heathens, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They are greedy about doing these things. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. What's he saying here? There should be a change in you. This is not what you've been taught. You know better. You know better. When we discipline our kids for doing wrong, is it that they don't know? No, we taught them. We told them 10,000 times not to do this or to do that or to pick up that and to put that away and to stop doing that. We've told them a thousand times. He says, you did not learn this this way. I've taught you the right way. 
And he's talking about the sensuality, the sinfulness, the greediness that they're involved with. You did not learn this. He says, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference of your former conduct the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. He said, there's an old man that should have been crucified. Stop doing what the old man is doing. Stop doing what the old man did. And then he says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And to put on. So now you see the principle? I want you to put off some things. I want you to put on some things. And what he says, um, what, uh, what you're to put on is to continue to not do these things. He says, and to put on, verse 24, the new man, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in right, righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Put that concept into your minds just for a moment. I want you to think about this. He says, you, who are believers, your neighbor is one of another. It's not Joe Shemo that lives down the road. If you're a child of God, you're family. You're next-door neighbors. Do you really want to treat your next-door neighbor that way? Do you really want to treat your next-door neighbor as an unsaved person when they're part of the family? No. He says, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil opportunity. These are things that should change when you put off the old man and put on the new man. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for rebuilding up what is in needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Put that back into Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Shall I continue in sin? What do you think after reading all these passages? No. Bottom line is he says, stop. Don't abuse the grace that I've given you. He says, just as God in Christ Jesus has also graciously forgiven you. God's grace and God's forgiveness go hand in hand. Yes, God is a gracious God who will forgive. But when we abuse his grace and continue in the sin, and just say, well, it's not that big a deal. We forfeit the blessing of God. We forfeit from having our prayers heard. We forfeit from having a sweet, close fellowship with God. One more verse I want to look at this morning, and that's verse 7. It says, For he who has died has been justified from sin. What's he talking about? We died to the flesh. We died to the sinfulness of our old man. If you've died and you've partaken of the grace, the forgiveness that God has given to you. He says, you're justified. And once again, this is an interesting word in the Greek language because it has, once again, a word picture. And the word picture is the word libel. You see, 
if I was going down the road and all of a sudden I just turned left in front of somebody, I didn't put my blinker on, I didn't in any way acknowledge them, and I just all of a sudden just turned out in front of them with no warning, and I caused, the, and caused an accident, guess who's liable? Why? Because I'm at fault. I caused it. If I uh, do something that causes a problem in the life of someone else and I instigated it, I would be considered liable. But this word justified means no longer liable. In other words, not only is it just as if I'd never sinned, when I deal with that sin, it's like you're no longer held responsible. You're no longer libeled for that when we deal with it. God's word says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. God wipes it clean when we deal with it. God's word also says it. It says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be what? White as wool. See, God's grace and his forgiveness is a powerful thing when we deal with it. Sin, that is. I don't know about you, but there are times in our lives when we say, well, I know this is probably not the best decision, but eh, big deal. Deal with it. This area of sinfulness, well, they can get over it. Ain't hurting them none. We forget that it does hurt. Dr. Olo, you say no one sins in a vacuum. You think that your sin doesn't affect anybody? Ask Aiken if it affected anybody. You remember the story. I mean, it was just a wedge of gold. It was just a nice garment. Nobody's going to know about it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to hide it. They lost the battle because of his decision that he thought nobody else would know about. That's just one example amongst many. Every choice has a consequence. Every sin has a consequence. And he says, shall I continue in sin just because God's grace is sufficient? No. Don't do it. God forbid you continue. May it never be so of you, he says. Because sin is a big deal. I don't know about you, but is there a sin that you think, well, no one else knows about? Is there a sin that, well, it's not that big a deal? Something you're watching. Something you're listening to. Something you're doing. Something that no one else knows about, but God knows about it. And it's hindering your walk with the Lord. It's causing you to have broken fellowship. It's causing your prayers not to be heard. It's even causing you to doubt whether or not God is there because after all, I'm praying He's not doing anything. But have you considered it could be that your sinfulness that you're not dealing with? A strained relationship that you know you're at fault. You know you're, you've sinned against that person that, in that relationship. You've yelled, you've screamed, you've exercised anger. Oh, well, they can deal with it. It's their fault. They're at fault. Regardless of who's at fault, what's your part in it? What's your sinfulness that you're not dealing with? He says, don't continue in sin. Lord, as we come before you, pray, Lord, that all of us in this room would do two things this morning. Lord, that we would be honest concerning our sinfulness. And Lord, that we would, number two, do something about it. Lord, I would love to think that in this congregation there are those who are truly 
honestly before God dealing with sin as it happens. They're walking in sweet fellowship. They're walking with a clear conscience and a heart that's been clean before you. But Lord, there may also be those who are hiding sin. They think they've hidden it from everyone around them, and maybe they have, but they have not hidden it from you. And yet, Lord, that sin is hindering their walk. It's hindering the fellowship that they could have with you. It's hindering their prayer life. Dear Father, we ask that you would allow people to be honest this morning and to be willing to do something, Lord, about their sin. May they be repentant today. May they confess it before you. And I pray, God, that you would just, once again, offer your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, once again, afresh and anew. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just ask for a moment that no one be looking around. Each and every week we have an opportunity to respond to what we've heard. Just an opportunity to either pray and say, God, forgive me, or God, help me to do this, or whatever. But you say, Pastor Ken, there's some areas of my life, maybe I have an area of sinfulness, a lie, a cheating, a wrong attitude, anger, a, a, a strained relationship, whatever it may be that I've not dealt with. It's sin. And I've continued in it. Say, Pastor, this morning God's convicted me of something that I need to deal with. Would you pray for me this morning? Anyone like that? Yes. Yes. In the front, in the back, the sides. What is hindering your walk with God right now? What is hindering you from having sweet fellowship with the Lord? What area of sin have you not dealt with? That really says to God, I'm abusing the grace that you've given. Say, Pastor, there's some areas of sin I need to deal with. Would you pray for me, anyone else? Can I challenge those of you who raised your hand to just take a moment and pray right there where you're at? Just get honest with God. You can't hide it from Him anyway, you can't get around the fact. God, forgive me for being. God, forgive me for doing. God, forgive me for saying. God, forgive me for being. Whatever the sin is, surrender it today. Surrender it today. Do not continue in it. God, forgive me for this area of sin. I repent. I confess it to you, Father. lay it all aside today and then ask for Jesus help there are some sins that are so hard to overcome but God's word is true first Corinthians says for every temptation there is a way of escape and oftentimes we need to make up our mind that we are going to say no we're not going to let sin reign in our bodies in our minds in our hearts temptation is not the sin it's when you give in to the temptation but stop it at the beginning of the thought. The next time you come to a position where you want to rationalize it or excuse it, justify it, say, God, no, help me. Surrender it today. Lord God, I pray that you be with each one who have raised their hand their heart towards you this morning, Lord, to allow them to see victory over patterns of sin in their life. Lord, none of us wants to abuse your grace. None of us wants to take your grace for granted. Your grace was costly. It was on the, given to us on the cross of Calvary. 
So God, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And God, we thank you for doing a work in our hearts and our lives this day. And for all of us, Lord, in this body, I pray that you'd help us to grow stronger together. May our fellowship become sweeter in the days ahead because we care for one another, because we love one another, because we encourage one another. And I pray, God, that we'd be faithful as we go through the fellowship of our suffering together for the cause of Christ. May your presence be not only known, Lord, but sensed, because you are a great God. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace this morning. We praise you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.